A young, a young man once asked a, a much older, very rich man how he had started his career and made his fortune. And the older fellow kind of looked thoughtful for a moment and he said, well, it all started in 1932. It was in the midst of the Great Depression and I was down to my last nickel and so I, I invested that nickel in an apple. And I spent the entire day polishing that apple. And at the end of the day, I sold that apple for 10 cents. The next morning, I invested those 10 cents in two apples. And I spent the entire day polishing both of those apples. And around 5 o'clock in the evening, I sold them for 20 cents. And I continued this system for about a month. And at the end of which time, I had accumulated a dollar and 40 cents. And the younger man was stunned by the tale. And he said, so... So that's how you built your empire? That's how you built your fortune? To which the older man replied, Well, heavens no. The secret is after I had earned that dollar and 40 cents, my wife's husband died and left me $2 million. (laughs) Pretty nice inheritance, right? Have you ever inherited anything? And it doesn't have to be a, a grand estate or a pile of cash. Uh, But has anyone ever died and left you something? Something that belonged entirely to them, and they could leave it to whomever they wanted to, but because of their will, you now possess something you can call your own, something maybe even that you treasure more than gold. Well, in our psalm today, Psalm 16, David is going to tell us about his inheritance. Uh, An inheritance is also a legacy that belongs to you and me today if we are in Christ. So if you have your Bibles with you and you're following along, we're looking at Psalm 16, a miktam of David. And he writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you noticed in the the first verse of of today's psalm, it's called a, a miktam of David. Uh, And the meaning of that word is a little ambiguous, but some uh, rabbinical scholars and sources believe it to mean a golden poem. Uh, And it's considered golden and precious because it's one of the messianic psalms of the Torah. uh, And one that speaks to us of God's continual care and his provision and guidance for his chosen people. And other uh, rabbis suggest that uh, part of the root of that word miktah means something hidden. And so if we take those ideas and kind of pull those two thoughts together, I think it makes sense here because for Christians, as we read this psalm, it becomes clear that God is beginning to reveal to David the mystery 
of this precious promise and his predetermined will to give us the gift of redemption and the hope of life after death. Uh, and, and so because of all of that, some Christian commentators have titled Psalm 16 as David's golden secret because it hints at the secret of the life and work and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, honestly, at this point, you may be saying, Pastor, uh, I read that psalm right along with you as it was on the screen, and I didn't see anything about Jesus in there. I didn't see his name mentioned or his life. Uh, Where are you getting all this from? Well, I can assure you it's from a very reputable source because the scripture that we read this morning was taken up by the Apostle Peter in his very first sermon that he preached after receiving the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Pretty good source, right? And this reading is a little bit long, but it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. So I just want you to keep this in mind. He's uh, day of Pentecost. He's preaching to a huge crowd that were gathered. And he says in Acts, beginning in chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, this is where he picks up Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you remember the story of Pentecost, that day when the Holy Spirit descended And the apostles began to speak in foreign languages to all the people from around the world that were gathered. And how Peter had to begin, because that happened, with an explanation to the people that he and the other disciples were not drunk. They weren't doing anything weird, but rather they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can see that back in verses 14 to 21. And then he kind of gets into the meat of his sermon that we just read And in doing that, he does a couple things. The first of which is he quoted scripture. You see, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to Jews. He's preaching to Jews who knew the scriptures. And so Peter reaches back to a text that his listeners would have been familiar with, and he uses it to teach them about Jesus. To teach them that Jesus rising from the dead was fulfilling all of the prophecies that they were anticipating. And using Psalm 16 in particular to prove that Jesus was the Messiah in whom their ancestor David was trusting. Uh, And that's important. Because that's always the place we need to start when we want to understand the heart of God. Because, you know, although the the Bible is a huge collection of smaller books, 
it is in essence really very simple. It's very simple because it forms one single work. And every book of the scripture is vitally connected to every other one. Because even though our Bible is made up of 66 books by about 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years, it's just one story. It's the story of the hope we have in Jesus Christ, and that story weaves its way from the first page of Genesis to the last amen of Revelation. Demonstrating that Jesus is the great object of all of Scripture. He's that, that scarlet thread woven through the narratives, making them more than just a collection of stories, but the greatest story, the greatest story of how God worked through history to save a people for himself. And that causing one author to write, skeptics and scoffers may fire their arrows at the validity and historicity of Scripture, but believers throughout the century have seen this crimson line weaving its way through every book of God's holy word. And it is the story of the redemption of mankind at the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And you see, Peter wanted his sermon to be grounded in God's word, so he pointed to the things that his audience already knew. He pointed to the things they knew from Scripture. And they knew symbolically that King David represented their Savior, that he typified their Messiah. And they knew that he had prophesied of a resurrection. But before he got there, Peter also knew that he had to speak to the people right where they were. He had to speak to them experientially. And so he didn't just jump straight to the climax of his message. But he began slowly by telling the people about the Jesus that they already knew. The one who had lived out his life in front of them. The one who had done miracles and wonders and signs. He didn't start with the resurrected Jesus. He didn't start with the fact that Jesus was was God? No, he started with the people's own experience. And he reminded them of that teacher that they had seen or that they had heard about. The one who had traveled all throughout the land doing good everywhere that he went. And you know, that's really another good lesson for us. Because we can't be, as the old saying used to go, that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Have you heard that? I mean, yes, we we need to share the word, we need to preach the gospel... But we also have to understand the very real lives that people are living out and be willing to reach out to people in practical terms. We've got to have that boots-on-the-ground ministry. We've got to be able to step into people's lives and to help shoulder their burdens and to feel their pain and to attempt to understand their circumstances and to lighten their burdens if we can. But we just can't stop there. That's not all the gospel is about. Because as beautiful a treasure as the gospel is with its good news, and as invaluable as an inheritance as it is, and as glorious and golden a message that it makes, uh, and as, as much as it helps people in their daily lives, the gospel is not just all sunshine and roses. It's not just all sunshine and roses. And so Peter needed to remind his audience of that side of the gospel message that sent Jesus to the cross. And so he reminded the people listening that they were complicit in and responsible for that outcome while at the same time making it clear that Jesus' trip to the cross is not only something that they were answerable for, but it's something God knew about and that God allowed. And that's why he said those words, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
And he reminds them, as you yourselves know, he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter is drawing on all of these ideas as he's preaching this inaugural sermon that day. And his message is so very simple. It's the message that Jesus Christ is stronger than death. That he is more powerful than the one thing that every human being of every culture fears more than anything else. And you see, Peter didn't feel the need to get into deep theology of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He just presented it as an accomplished fact. And instead, Peter focuses on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what makes him so unique. That's what validated his ministry because his resurrection is the greatest feat in the annals of recorded history. And it's through the resurrection that Jesus demonstrated that he's not standing in a lineup of any supposed rivals or religious peers. Because, uh, brothers and sisters, Moses is dead and long buried. Uh, Gautama Buddha's tomb is still around, it's still a place of pilgrimage. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. The Mormon leader Joseph Smith is dead. But brothers and sisters, our Redeemer is alive. Our Redeemer is alive. All the rest of those guys died and they stayed dead. And Peter wanted to show that Jesus rising from the dead is in line with what the people of his day were looking for in a Messiah. And so he talks about this prophecy from our good friend King David that we've been looking at as we read. David said, For you will not allow my... Abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And David is talking about how God continues to be with him no matter what he's going through, whether it's in this life or in death, so that he knows he wouldn't be abandoned to the realm of the dead. But see, when Peter comes to this text, when he quotes this psalm, he sees something greater. He sees a greater heritage. He sees a richer treasure, an amazing inheritance, because he knows that that promise wasn't just for David. It wasn't just for David. He knew that Jesus, as David's descendant, was living out Psalm 16 in a very special way because Peter had witnessed it. Peter had seen the fulfillment of that prophecy himself. Peter had seen David's descendant rise from the dead and he saw that decay did not overcome Jesus. And that that prophecy was now being fulfilled in an ultimate sense in Christ and for us. For us as an anchor of the hope of our redemption from sin and of the promise of eternal life. And this is where Peter kind of pulls on the, the thoughts of Psalm 16 and pulls it to a close and says, Let all therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Powerful message, right? So powerful, I'm going to tell you what happened at the end of the story. Listen to this. Pick it up in verse 37. So he preaches this message, and now when all the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children 
and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. What a message. And what I want you to see here is when the people heard that message and when they realized they had treated with contempt the treasure that had been placed before them, they realized it wasn't enough just to hear the message of the gospel. It wasn't enough just to hear that Jesus rose from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. They needed to respond. Now, perhaps one of the reasons that the message cut them so deeply was maybe it was obviously the first time they'd ever heard it. But more likely it was the fact that the Holy Spirit was speaking so clearly through Peter. But either way, they knew they needed to act. They knew they needed to do something. And the something that Peter called them to do is the same something that we are called to do because he told them to repent and be baptized. He told them to save themselves from this corrupt generation. He told them to turn to God and to change their minds. To change their minds about whoever they thought Jesus was if they didn't think he was the eternal son of God. Uh, And now I know many of us have repented. Uh, The vast majority of us are baptized. But that can't be the end of our response. We've got to continue to live it out. You know, those things aren't just something that you do once and then go on and live the rest of your life the way you did before. Because David and Peter, and most importantly, our Lord Jesus Christ himself is calling for something deeper, something much more profound, because living as a believer, living as a follower of the resurrected Jesus Christ means that he's genuinely our Lord too. He's Lord of our lives. It means our priorities are changed and that God from now on has to be at the top of that priority list. It's got to be above yourself and above your family and above your politics and above the church and above your friends and above your jobs. This is what all of us are, are, as Christ followers, are called to do. It's what God desires from each of us. So are you ready to do that? Are you ready to put him first? Are you ready to let him have first place on that priority list? Are you ready to give yourself fully to him? Are you ready to have your life radically changed the same way that Peter did? Or as one of those 3,000 folks that joined the church did? And if you are, you can do it today. You can do it today because of the confidence that we have in the resurrection. You can do it because of the miracle of the empty tomb. The miracle that's more than just a one-time event that occurred 2,000 years ago, but is God's open invitation to us. An invitation to a new and a completely changed life. A life of liberty and security and restoration and faith. A life of purpose. A life empowered by His Holy Spirit. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, as followers of Jesus, am I living out that resurrection life? Am I living my life in such a way that I acknowledge that not only Jesus Christ is alive, but that He is Lord of my life? Or or am I just kind of going through the motions of living? Am I kind of wrapped up in my own life and in the culture around me? And believe me, I realize how easy that is to do. That may even be happening to you right now. You may feel right now like everything and everyone is against you. You may feel like right now that you're in an impossible situation. You might feel right now like nothing can fix your problems 
And you may feel like no one can help you, but brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, that's just not true. Because as Christians, we have a priceless treasure set aside for us. We have an inexhaustible inheritance in heaven because we have a knowledge and an assurance of that great golden secret that Jesus Christ is alive, that he's living. And because Jesus lives, I know that the dark days that I have won't last. Because Jesus lives, I know that nothing is beyond God's power. Because Jesus lives, I know that my hard times are never wasted. Because we have that promise from Scripture. Isaiah 53 says that, that He, that Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. And He continues, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus went through all of that for us. His hard times weren't wasted, and if you and I are in Christ, then yours aren't wasted either. Because we know the Bible's promise. We know that all things, what, read it with me, all things work together for good. So I can hear you, right? Say it like you mean it. Right? All things work together for good to those who love God. Those who are called according to His purpose. That's the inheritance we have if we are in Christ. But I also have the sad duty to tell you that the opposite is true. Uh, right now, this moment today, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have never publicly acknowledged Him as Lord of your life, then the hard times that come your way uh, and that you're going through are not guaranteed to do you any good. They're just part of living life in a fallen world full of fallen people and fallen circumstances and the best that you can hope for uh, is just to suck it up and live with it. And that's just the truth. Right? But if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have asked God to forgive your sins, if you've received Him into your heart, then the pains of life also come with a promise. They come with a promise to be used for your good and for God's glory, because He lives. Like the, like the old hymn says, Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all hope, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future, and life is worth the living, just because He lives. Amen? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank You uh, that each Lord's Day is a, a new Resurrection Sunday, and it's an opportunity, Lord, for us to surrender our hearts and our minds to you. And so, Father, I ask that uh, your presence would be so real and so moving in this place and in this time, if there's even one heart that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would break that heart open, uh, that you would take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart uh, on fire and in love with Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for all that you do among us and for your love, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.